From the studios of WBAA Public Radio in West Lafayette, this is Indiana Public Broadcasting's monthly conversation with Purdue University President Mitch Daniels. I'm Stan Jastrzewski. We appreciate you listening to the program this month. And if ever you have a question you'd like to make sure gets on this program, email that to ask at WBAA.org or tweet your questions at WBAA News on Twitter. Well, I want to start with something about which there's been a fair amount of buzz recently. Uh, you being the sports fan you are, uh, no doubt saw that the University of Louisville fired its football coach, Bobby Petrino, and almost as soon as the ink was dry on that story, there was speculation that Jeff Brom, the Purdue head football coach, who, of course, along with his brother, played quarterback at the University of Louisville. It's both of their head, uh, their hometown. Uh, everyone said, well, aren't they the right place to go to try and find the next head coach for the University of Louisville. Coach Brom, in his press conference immediately thereafter, did his level best to say, look, I'm employed where I'm employed. We've got a couple more games to go in this season. I'm not thinking about it. How does the university, though, deal with that sort of speculation? And and, and are you thinking about ways to try to keep Coach Brom from being enticed? We deal with the speculation by not commenting on it, which is what I'm about to do. <laughs> um, I'll just say that I don't think we needed any more proof that uh, we were lucky enough to secure the a tremendous coach and his performance since he got here already demonstrated that. And I think this is just the latest validation of it. So in, in terms, though, of the negotiations that might go on between one university and another, I, it would seem like Louisville would have to buy out a contract that would cost them millions of dollars. Does the does the financial aspect of that ever come into play in terms of figuring out what one university would give or take? Every university has to make that decision for itself. We've obviously made a very significant uh, commitment. But within a self-financing athletic department – that doesn't um, impose at costs on the, let's say, the tuition or the whole student body. And um, but uh, every school has to decide its priorities and, and, and its available resources for itself. And um, there wouldn't be any negotiation. They would, um, if they want to make an offer, it's a free country. But um, we're just so proud of Coach Brom and. Um, so very glad to have him, and obviously we hope that'll continue. We'll just have to buy the uh, football team some gloves or something to learn how to play in cold weather, I guess. Mm. Um, on to other things, your most recent Washington Post column laments the loss of political civility in this year's campaigns. And uh, I have to ask, though, if if we're all looking at this from a very kind of near-term reference frame. I can think, uh, you know, you and I like to talk about history from time to time when we're off the air here. And I was thinking about the, there was a famous slogan that was used against Grover Cleveland uh, when he was running for president uh, that talked about him fathering children out of wedlock. I mean, really nasty stuff. And so, you know, now we're just inundated by TV and the web and social media. It's, It's really hard to escape a bruising election cycle when another one happens. Do you think it's possible we've just sort of upgraded the weaponry that we use to have bruising campaigns? It's not muskets anymore. It's cluster bombs of social media now. <laughs> right. I, I cited the uh, old phrase that people will sometimes offer up, politics ain't beanbags, somebody once said. No. 
But I do think it's qualitatively different now. Uh, the the uh, uh, prying into people's lives, the uh, sometimes even physical uh, intimidation that we've seen lately. People can't even go to a restaurant. People now having their doors beaten on at home, um, and uh, and just the uh, way in which the modern media enable uh, folks to uh, all uh, just all kind of folks to uh, pile on in a, a highly personal way. Um, so I do think it's different by degree. And the point of the piece was that um, uh, the tactics now employed using these this new weaponry, which is, your phrase is a good one, um, are so relentlessly negative that it is deterring people uh, from uh, who otherwise might make real contributions from uh, going into public life or uh, venturing in there, and um, that'd be that'd be too bad. But uh, this hardly a unique or novel observation. But uh, I, I said in the piece, I have always wanted to encourage, especially young talent, men and women of both parties, by the way, who ask, yes, in the right time and place, do try to participate, and. Um, I have to stop and think these days whether you're really doing giving somebody good advice or doing them a favor. Do you think it depends on the race, on the climate of the overall election year? How do you make that choice whether to give advice? I do. I think, for instance, I think Indiana is a much um, – on a relative basis has, has been a more uh, uh, civilized political environment. I think, quite honestly, races that are non-federal um, – are, are tend to be a little less vicious. I mean, races. I was I was lucky enough to be involved in, uh, I think, in uh, campaigns for governor, where if you want them to be, they can be about constructive proposals and and um, uh, and, and a good debate about policy. Um, these federal elections lately, uh, particularly with with uh, outside uh, interest groups who um, may spend more money than the campaigns themselves by far and have no stake in anything except winning. And uh, I think that's all in the in the witch's brew here, which has made a lot of people, I think, uh, uncomfortable in, uh, with, our, um, with our campaign environments. But maybe this will move in a cycle and eventually uh, people will weary of it and demand something a little better. One of the things psychologists have long said is that, like it or not, negative campaigning works. It draws people to vote a certain way. And uh, we sometimes talk in, in academia about the problem with trying to prove a negative. You have the opposite problem, it seems, in electoral politics. It's sometimes hard to prove that you can run a relentlessly positive campaign. It's something that, like him or not, Mike Pence, for a long, long time, held on to that. I will not run a negative ad or say a negative thing about my opponent far longer than most politicians do. Um, that, and, ca that came after he it felt badly about having run a very uh, negative campaign, and he sort of, which I thought showed a, a, a character and judgment on his part. I mean, the people who peddle this stuff will tell you it's the only way to win, and I guess in some cases maybe that's true. And I and it's certainly true you that uh, one can't uh, allow complete falsehoods to go uncontradicted, or people will believe them. But I said in the piece, you know, 
not that long ago, we ran 100 uh, percent constructive campaigns, used the campaign not just to win the election, but to lay out maybe in more detail than people wanted to hear what we thought would uh, could be done to make Indiana a better, stronger, freer, more prosperous place. And um, it's the best chance a candidate gets. It's even better than being in office when you everything gets filtered through uh, media and people may or may not catch it. But um, uh, so I, uh, uh, but I do think that there are certain offices one can compete for uh, that are less amenable to the slash and burn uh, tactics, and um, and there are probably places. And I'd like to think Indiana is still one where we expect a little more. Um, uh, a, a little more character, a little less um, nastiness out of our public officials. And I will say it's something that people across the political spectrum have commented me about Eric Holcomb, saying that he's very good about staying away from divisiveness, talking about constructive issues of how do you make Indiana better. So one of those things that's it's being practiced, it seems, in the governor's office even as we speak. Um, this is Indiana Public Broadcasting's monthly conversation with Purdue University President Mitch Daniels. Email your questions to ask at WBAA.org. Tweet them at WBAA News on Twitter. You gave a speech recently at the 50th anniversary of the Reason Foundation, which is a libertarian think tank for people who don't know. Um, you gave the group some credit for some things you did as governor, implementing school vouchers. You said you took some advice from their thinking. And you talked a lot about people making their own decisions, you know, free from systematic influence. Of course, that's a, a core libertarian belief. You saw it in the Senate race this year with what Lucy Brenton was talking about. Here's my question to you. How do you think in a society like the one we have now, we were just talking about the political divisiveness and the impact of media on that. Ideas across the political spectrum seem to be very entrenched in a way that in some cases seems to shove reason aside. And I don't care if you're on the left or you're on the right. It happens to both sides. How do we get from a place where we stop believing what we want to be true rather than what often is empirically true so that ideas can work as the Reason Foundation seems to hope? It's a very central question. I think we've discussed it here before. Um, these, these same media we keep talking about in other contexts reinforce people's biases, peddle play back to you uh, 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 information that their algorithm says you are likely to receive positively, all of that. And um, uh, so I think the places like Purdue are as important as they've ever been in helping, let's say, tomorrow's leaders to uh, remain a critical, become better critical thinkers, realize there often are uh, two or three or more sides to a given issue, and um, and seek out, not simply uh, be open to, but to seek out uh, information or arguments that might challenge uh, whatever view you happen to hold at the at the moment. Maybe one of the most important things in the society we have entered that a place like ours can can. Uh, I do. Well, the thing I also notice is that this happens to a lot of think tanks, the Reason Foundation, certainly not alone. And let's take school vouchers as an example. On paper, I think school vouchers could be supported by people across the political spectrum. There's a lot you could believe in there. And yet it is tough. You and I are both parents of daughters, and I'm sure we both believe that we could 
can and could have done more to be more engaged in what our daughters were doing in the classroom and knowing exactly what was going on. But it's tough for parents. We're getting busier, not less busy. And so when it comes to doing a thing like choosing whether to move your child from one school to another, that's a more and more difficult decision all the time, I think you can make the argument, which detracts, I think, from the arguments about whether school vouchers, for instance, are are a good thing or a bad thing. They could be used, I think, better than they have been used. And as uh, a lot of numbers have suggested in the last couple of years, what might be the gains that you could make have not been what exactly were advertised about school vouchers. And so as we're getting into this situation where we've got all this data and we're trying to distill it down into what makes the difference for us, how can a place like Purdue teach people to better not just aggregate and interpret that data, but but use it in a way that says, look, let's go towards what is what is fact instead of what seems to be true? How do you how do you realign people's thinking? Because it seems like we might need a, a, a new primer on that these days. Probably the most uh, talked about uh, discipline or uh, to some extent new discipline uh, that we're uh, 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 talking about all the time here, so-called data science, data analytics. And uh, we intend it to be we think it's so important. We intend it to be a part of the education of every Purdue student, whether they're a, a statistician or a computer scientist or a data analyst uh, by uh, by major and future profession, or just uh, somebody entering a world in which this unprecedented amount of data is available. And uh, we want to, uh, uh, our students to be able to learn how to interrogate data intelligently and ask good questions and and. I'm getting back to your question because uh, maybe this will help if, as people in their daily lives, in their business and professional lives, are more and more involved with uh, looking for patterns and asking questions of this explosion, explosive amount of, of information we now have. Um, maybe they'll uh, will move back in the direction of. Of, of following facts where they lead, as opposed to starting with a preconceived notion and then picking out the facts that that support us. You know, the reason I gave that speech was not about any one issue, really, or uh, certainly not about the uh, any the, the current, the temporal nature of our of our um, uh, public uh, debates. Uh, I think the big question, this is a 50-year anniversary, so I was trying to think through with them what the next 50 might be. And I was just musing on the fact that um, uh, there may be even bigger threats to freedom, individual freedom, if you believe that that is a primary um, value of our society. Um, uh, we, We saw totalitarianism disappear, walls crumble and these these uh, bestial regimes go away, but um, I'll suggest that it hasn't completely disappeared. You know, we've well, still got places like Myanmar and, well, to fair, some extent, China. And f- fair enough. North in Korea. terms of, it, it, um, but you know, new threats are are emerging, and um, those include, I think, uh, some degree of uh, authoritarianism from both left and right in um, countries like ours. Uh, people who seem very quick to want to um, order other people around and limit their freedom. Um, 
these new technologies, which coupled with willful regimes, um, might enable um, not the liberation of people, which a lot of folks thought the uh, information revolution would bring, but the subjugation of people, because you can follow them around and and and, and know uh, instantaneously if they have a dissenting thought or well. And the other thing behavior. you can do is bombard them with ideas that might cause something that is very perplexing to me, which is I see more and more people voting and acting in ways that if they were to think about it for a second are not actually in their own interest. And mm-hmm. this this is not unique. We have done this as a country since we've existed, but it just perplexes me that we're able to have all of this information and still not pick out the right parts, which I think strikes me as a key responsibility for Purdue and IU and all of the other educational institutions are out here to go, no, no, these are the things that are the really most key parts that you as the individual consumer of this information need to hone in on. Yeah. On to other things, uh, I came across an interesting article the other day. I didn't know if you've seen it before I, I sent it to you. More or less a, a personal blog where someone did a, a kind of a long read take on your on the idea of placemaking um, from your time as governor until now as president of Purdue. And, and the author, a guy by the name of Aaron Wren, says, and I'm going to quote him now briefly, he says, as governor, Daniels railed against what he termed gold-plated projects. Uh, and then he goes on to say of State Street, this is not only a gold-plated project, it's arguably the nicest urban street in the state of Indiana. So, this, this term that we're talking about, placemaking, has become one of the big buzzwords of all of the urban planners and municipal leaders that I talk to anymore. Uh, is Mr. Wren right at all? Has your view on that shifted somewhat? I'm not sure. I thought it was a very interesting article. Uh, he's, a, he's a very uh, uh, fascinating uh, writer. Uh, uh, on reflection, I don't think it's changed too much. I never disputed that uh, attractive places could uh, make an um, uh, difference in terms of economic growth and and um, and the uh, recruitment of talent to uh, which is so decisive now in the economy to a place. Um, part of it is has to do with where you sit. Now, um, in in my previous job, sometimes people were looking for state tax dollars to subsidize some amenity that they claimed would improve their quote sense of place. And uh, uh, I was often skeptical of some of those. And now I will point out State Street's a homegrown project. This is Purdue and West Lafayette and um, uh, coming together to do something for our own community that we think will um, repay uh, dividends in the future. Uh, I hope we're already seeing those. The uh, uh, decision of Schweitzer Engineering Laboratories to – Put their new facility right there at the end of State Street, I hope, is uh, the first robin of spring. I hope there will be several more of those coming. And, um, uh, but um, I thought he made a, an interesting point, and maybe I have some slightly greater appreciation. You know, sense of place is absolutely um, – the quality of the place is absolutely relevant to a university like ours, a research university, which is – um, really, the sum of its intellectual parts, its faculty and the others who uh, people who come and live and study here and um, so if it matters anywhere, it matters to a place like uh, Purdue and the community uh, around it 
Um, and the and, writer, uh, I will point out, says in the piece, he says, uh, Daniels might not say it, but perhaps when he got to Purdue, he looked at it, he meaning you, uh, looked at it and said, this is not exactly the way we want things to look. And you said about making some changes. He also poses a question, which I want to give you a chance to answer here. He says, it'd be interesting to see how Daniels might have approached being governor if it had come after running Purdue instead of before it. Might he have been more friendly to local government capital improvements, particularly ones with higher grade designs and he does point out that uh, you know obviously Lucas Oil Stadium was built on your watch which some people said enabled Indianapolis to keep the Colts instead of them moving elsewhere can I just point out that was a convention center first and a football stadium second sure right I uh, would you know which uh um, and obviously the convention center has expanded to host things like Gen Con and the giant FFA convention and right. firefighters. And more more like than 90 percent of the events in that in that in the dome are not Colts football games. Right. So but the other side of it is uh, for people who don't uh, know, you took a little bit of criticism as governor going to Mr. Wren's point about Interstate 69 allowing contractors to take small stretches of the road. There were some people who said you were building a zebra highway because it could be asphalt for a few miles and then concrete for a few miles. Whether that was fair or not, it was something people said. So back to his question, though. Do you think if your jobs had been reversed in the order in which you took them, it might have changed your thinking? I can't think of a specific instance when it might, might have, but, it, but maybe. I mean, this it's, it's a live and learn life, isn't it? And I think I've been a little uh, wiser. Uh, uh, I hope I have at every job based on whatever went before. I mean, I clearly learned a lot of things uh, in serving as governor that I think have been valuable here, but just just as I had learned from the roles before that. So, yeah, probably. And on this specific question, again, um, I, I'm still never going to be a fan of uh, extensive public subsidies of what are, uh, what are sometimes uh, private interests uh, or of, uh, in that phrase, gold plating where – uh, something uh, solidly stainless steel will do, but uh, I, I think in the case of State Street, certainly I, I'm, a, I'm a genuine believer that this is a a, a, a good investment a, a, with a very good chance of paying off for the for the long term for our university and and for the community that we uh, live in. The day before we taped this, uh, you accepted an award from the Indiana Chamber for Business Leadership. And uh, as you accepted that award, you you were talking also about a plan for what's called brain gain. You talked a lot as governor about try- and, and as Purdue president. You've talked about trying to reduce brain drain. Tell me what the brain gain plan is all about. We've thought for a long time, based on a lot of individual encounters, that there were a lot of people out there, and Purdue alums, but not only Purdue, who uh, grew up in this state and or were educated in this state, might love to come back to this state, but their careers have taken them elsewhere. So we've been doing a little sampling, and um, uh, here we are at a time when this state is – it has more jobs than people to fill them in many categories. and um, Certainly lacking skilled workforce is one of the things Governor Holcomb and his team are talking a and, lot about. And they're absolutely right. We're at the – Indiana's at the top of everybody's – top tier of everybody's um, list of good places to do business. But this is the one uh, obvious gap that people identify the, is, is uh, a, a talent uh, that's uh, well-suited to the jobs of today. So uh, we've done some sampling. We've got a very encouraging response in terms of people uh, um, uh, coming back and saying, yeah, tell me more. I'm interested. And now the job is to 
see if we can match businesses with very specific needs up with interested expatriates who might like to uh, come back to this state if they just knew the right fit. Do the businesses and, have to have any skin in the game here? Well, I think uh, ultimately they'll 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 uh, gladly I think pay a little something to help us finance all this for for the. Uh, the service, as they would pay a search firm of a any hunter. other kind. Right. Yeah. But, um, you know, mainly uh, we're excited about uh, trying to uh, make Indiana a, a, a brain-gain state, a destination for talented people. It's a great quality of life, very affordable place, and um, you know, people have the right professional opportunities. So it's working – it looks good enough here. We're going to do, try to do it at scale at Purdue. We're going to try to get other universities and colleges who have their own great cohorts of talented alums out there to uh, go fishing and see if uh, there aren't a few interested uh, graduates of uh, from their place. How do you entice somebody who's, say, in Seattle working for Amazon, as a number of Purdue graduates go and do every single year, how do you entice them to come back from a, a major metropolitan area, which has its own pleasures, to a place like Indianapolis or Greater mm. Lafayette? Well, of course, I've been recruiting people to Indiana for many years in different lives. And um, it, shouldn't be, it should uh, be easier now than ever. I mean, some of those places are unlivable. Two-hour commutes, people sleeping in their cars, unbelievably expensive to do everything. Uh, we have quality of life, convenience of life, and cost-of-living advantages. Um, there are a lot of people out there, not everybody, but there are a lot of people who, uh, uh, especially as they en- enter the child-rearing uh, years, um, would like a, 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 a place uh, better suited to that. And uh, we've got lots of places in this state that are uh, labeled all the time as among the best places for raising children. So you have all of that and a more diverse economy than we've had before. So um, – the, the good news is that that uh, the so-called brain drain has been arrested. In fact, it's reversed in a in a small way, and more college graduates have been moving into the state, uh, working-age college graduates, than out. And now, the, but that's not nearly enough. And the question is, what can we do to um, uh, identify and and recruit back uh, talent that maybe we trained in the first place? On to one last thing. In our last couple of minutes, a few weeks ago, uh, you wrote a remembrance of the Indianapolis Star journalist Matt Tully, who passed away after a long battle with cancer. Here was somebody you said you sort of grew up with. He was getting to his job as you were running for governor. Um, here was somebody who also regularly criticized your administration and the Republican Party. Um, but you wrote that, uh, and I'm quoting you now, you said, Matt probed and challenged and criticized when he disagreed, and he was fair. When he saw real results, he acknowledged and reported them. Did it help your governorship in some way to have such a reliable critic who had such high standards? I think uh, a a strong and and a attentive and inquisitive press is always an important uh, factor for improvement, both a check on uh, on, on uh, people in public life and often a a, a prompt to uh, get better. Matt Tully, uh, you, uh, as you pointed out, the, my first uh, campaign uh, for office was his first Indiana campaign to cover, and he uh, 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 followed us the the balance of the of a decade um he was uh, as i said there a tough inquisitor and frequently saw things differently 
but he always was uh, open-minded. And when he saw that uh, there were, he wrote columns acknowledging that there were something, he, some things he didn't think were wise at the beginning that had worked out well, and he was willing to give credit for that. The last thing was he'd never. I thought fell prey to this cynicism that uh, uh, that uh, no one in public life can be trusted, and simply being interested in public office is, uh, proves your uh, um, motives aren't at the best. And uh, he had some, I think, appreciation and affection that uh, there are a lot of people in it for the right reasons. I got to go see him at his house just a couple weeks before we lost him, and I'll always be very glad. I- had that chance. Well, hopefully we we do not have that same cynicism on this show either. We appreciate your time as always and taking your time to expound on things and we'll do it again next month. See you then. This has been Indiana Public Broadcasting's monthly conversation with Purdue University President Mitch Daniels. Find all of these shows archived at WBAA.org. I'm Stan Jastrzewski. Enjoy the rest of your day. Support for the monthly conversation with Mitch Daniels comes from Purdue University Press, publishing global scholarship and popular regional work since 1960. Today in print, ebook, and open access formats. More information at thepress.purdue.edu.